This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, February 23, 2018. I'm Caleb Brown. Antagonism toward free trade is part of what propelled Donald Trump to the White House, but the costs of sacrificing trading relationships for some particular political goal can be massive. Douglas Irwin has studied the long history of trade policy and its sometimes uncomfortable associations with politics. His new book is Clashing Over Commerce, a History of U.S. Trade Policy. We spoke last month. In the founding era, what did politicians think about trade and tariffs? Because I'm thinking about the the original budgets of the United States of America, and tariffs played an incredibly – a huge role in funding the government. Absolutely. So um, we – Right from the very beginning, we were a trading country. We were really dependent on uh, importing a lot of manufactured goods from Britain. And most of the founding fathers uh, wanted to encourage trade. They realized that it helped the prosperity, uh, build the prosperity of the United States. But the problem on the, the Articles of Confederation was this national government had no means of raising revenue. So one of the arguments for the Constitution was to empower the new National Congress to have the power to tax. And everyone at the time recognized it would involve taxing imports. That was simply the most efficient way of raising revenue for the federal government. So most, I'd say there's a broad consensus that those tariffs should be moderate. You didn't want to discourage imports too much, but obviously you need to raise enough revenue to fund the debt and whatever federal expenditures there were. But of course, uh, you sort of open up a little bit of Pandora's box because as soon as you give Congress the power to tax imports for revenue purposes, it also raises the issue of how much, uh, how high those tariffs should be in terms of protecting domestic manufacturers. That debate was initially postponed. So the first tariffs were really mainly revenue-raising devices, and the protectionist debate came a bit later. So where did we see, first see protectionism uh, being offered? I guess under, in in a sense, under the guise of protectionism, but really to punish foreigners. So there was always a debate about that in the early years, but not it really didn't manifest itself in legislation. Um, James Madison, who introduced the, the revenue tariff bill uh, in the first Congress, wanted to postpone any debate on protectionism or reciprocity. He really wanted to get the money into the government, government coffers uh, as soon as possible. But uh, people did raise the issue, well, maybe we should be protecting infant industries or certain manufacturers. But really, the first time Congress passed a tariff bill explicitly designed not so much for revenue purposes but to protect domestic manufacturers was after the end of the War of 1812 when commerce resumed, imports surged in, and there was a tariff bill passed in 1816 uh, really designed to stop a lot of those imports from coming in. Were were coastal areas always more – aware of the benefits of trade than than people further inland? Because this is a history, and I, I assume people who are more far-flung into the the wilderness of the, the United States at the time maybe weren't as uh, thoughtful about trade. Uh, it really didn't break down in, ter- co- in terms of uh, coastal versus inland uh, interests. Um, so a good example of this is uh, actually a Dartmouth uh, alum, uh, Daniel Webster, senator from Massachusetts. So in the early 1820s, he championed open trade because Boston at that time was a major seaport and the merchant marine was very important for the Massachusetts economy. But also in Massachusetts, uh, as a result of uh, sort of the disruption of trade during the War of 1812, um, a cotton textile industry began to grow up. Uh, because we were deprived of imports. And what he began to 
do is by, by the late 1820s, he began to move away from championing open trade and wanting higher tariffs on imported textiles to protect the growing uh, textile industry in Massachusetts. So there's a coastal area. Um, obviously, uh, there's a merchant uh, interest in open trade, but there was also this textile interest in more closed trade. And he, as a senator, was trying to you know, serve as constituents and balance out those two, and he found it very difficult to do so. So I, I thought it would have been the opposite, but I suppose if you're in a coastal area, you're uh, more directly affected by import, potentially more directly affected by imports for good and ill. Exactly. So in the deep south, where we were exporting cotton and rice and tobacco, obviously those regions really wanted open trade. Uh, they were focused on exports. But in the Philadelphia region, that was sort of where uh, infant um, steel manufacturers, glass manufacturers. Um, uh, earthenware manufacturers, they began to grow up. So even though they were close to the coast, they were the ones that were vulnerable to um, uh, import uh, competition. So uh, in the uh, 1800s, we see a lot more protectionism, people sort of proudly uh, talking about it. What was driving that? Uh, well, the senator who was most responsible for sort of pushing this protectionist agenda was Henry Clay of uh, Kentucky. And uh, he uh, had this uh, American system idea where we'd levy high tariffs on imports of manufactured goods. We'd sort of nationalized uh, production of manufacturers, and that would create a stronger, a stronger economy. But he was really opposed in Congress by um, Southern export interests, New England export interests, and sort of the big battle, uh, which, which we've been fighting ever since, is over which region of the country um, is going to dominate in terms of what their trade interests are and how that plays out in Congress. Do we have a sense of the the value of the goods that the United States was importing and exporting and and what that represented as a as a fraction of our uh domestic product in those in those time periods? We do. So in the uh, late colonial period, early federalist period, you know, exports and imports were uh, 10, 15, 20% of uh, GDP. Um, but as the economy grew and sort of stabilized in the early 19th century and into the later 19th century as well, uh, the trade share was pretty small, um, you know, maybe 5 to 10% of GDP. And that's largely because you know, we are a continental-sized economy. Um, so unlike uh, a small economy like Belgium or Hong Kong, which is very highly dependent on trade, uh, a lot of uh, commerce is domestic in the United States, and foreign trade is just a small part of the overall economy. So in the in, as we turn to the 1900s, we see a sort of a decline in imports. Why? Well, they didn't really decline as a share of GDP. There were, it's about 5% of GDP or so. But uh, basically, you know, we talked about the protectionist debates um, in the early 19th century, but really uh, a big change occurred during the Civil War. Um, so that's when the North and the Republican Party uh, came into political preeminence. And uh, the North was where a lot of manufacturing industries were that were facing foreign competition. Plus, the federal government needed revenue uh, to pay for the Civil War. The North did. And so you get this ratchet effect where tariffs go up uh, starting in the 1860s, and they remain high right uh, through the 1930, early 1930s with Smoot-Hawley. So we sort of enter into this period of pretty high protect, protective duties being imposed, and that, of course, suppressed any growth in the uh, share of imports and GDP. Was there a racial component to a lot of these fights over trade? That's something I didn't go into or detect very much in terms of um, 
uh, my book. Uh, obviously, um, you know, we did trade with Asia, and there was obviously uh, immigration restrictions against uh, Chinese immigrants at, at various points. Um, but uh, most of our trade was with uh, uh, Western Europe uh, and Canada. And it's only really in the 20th century that we really get much more diversified in terms of where we're sourcing our imports from. All right. So uh, Smoot and Hawley were, I guess, guess what was their background that led them to this point of sponsoring this massive trade restriction? Well, you know, unlike today, uh, uh, or at least recent history, the Republican Party historically has been the party of high tariffs. And that's because, uh, once again, back in the 19th century and early 20th centuries, the political base of the Republican Party was in the north where a lot of manufacturing industries were. So when they introduced uh, the, uh, the bill um, in actually uh, Hawley in the House of Representatives, uh, he represented Oregon. Um, it, he introduced the bill in the spring of 1929 to raise tariffs. It was sort of a normal Republican thing to do. Uh, we hadn't, we weren't at the business cycle peak yet. The Great Depression, you know, no one had uh, anticipated, um, and it was just designed, really, over uh, uh, to raise tariffs on agricultural goods to help out farmers who didn't do well during the 1920s. But it quickly sort of spiraled and met metastasized into a much bigger piece of legislation that included higher tariffs on manufactured goods as well, sort of spun out of control. There was log rolling. Um, and by the time it was passed, it took almost a year and a half to work its way through Congress. Uh, it finally was passed in June of 1930. We were then had entered into a recession, which would become the Great Depression. Um, and uh, so it was sort of a typical, normal Republican piece of legislation. But um, people didn't anticipate, first of all, that we would have this downward world economic spiral, the Great Depression. And no one really anticipated, and certainly Smoot and Hawley didn't, that foreign countries would retaliate against U.S. exports, which just dealt another severe blow to uh, world trade at the time. The, uh, the Hawley-Smoot, the Tariff Act – was, as I understand it, a very complicated piece of legislation that had really highly specific uh, tariffs on highly specific things. Absolutely. Do so, yep. So, there are about 3,000 tariff lines, and um, Congress changed about 1,000 of them, I believe. And so, what that involved in the Senate in particular was roll call votes on every single line of the tariff code. So, they would have a debate and a roll call vote on the um, clothespin tariff the um, copper piping tariff, the nail tariff. Um, and it was very laborious, took a lot of time. Uh, obviously, they drew a lot of ridicule for wasting so much time on this sort of micromanaging the tariff code. And it did prove, in fact, to be the last tariff act ever passed by Congress. They, after that, delegated uh, authority to the executive branch. Um, how did that perform? I know could because, you know, I spoke about a year ago with uh, Dan Eikenson and some of our other trade people about the degree to which uh, so much of the authority over uh, trade and tariffs was handed to the executive branch. How did that perform uh, with President you know, Coolidge, uh, Roosevelt, and others? Yeah, so Coolidge didn't get that authority, um, uh, uh, but the, the authority was passed in 1934 once the Democrats took over. Um, but, you know, the 1930s was a sort of a disastrous decade, not just economically, but politically around the world, the rise of fascism, and it's not exactly the right time to reach a lot of trade agreements. So the Roosevelt administration tried what it could to sort of reduce trade barriers around the world as a way of helping the world economy, but uh, they didn't get very far. But it did lay the groundwork for what happened after World War II, which is much more extensive uh, tariff cuts and uh, trade negotiations led by the United States. 
what led FDR to be such a free trader? I mean, you mentioned you mentioned some some terrible things, but uh, you know, ideologically, it doesn't. Uh, for a lot of people, I think it doesn't necessarily follow that he was. Uh, the person he was with regard to trade. Exactly. Well, um, you know, obviously with the New Deal, he was uh, uh, much more interventionist in the economy and, and uh, in many ways. And he, I wouldn't call him a free trader. He was really divided. He didn't have a strong view on trade. In fact, most presidents historically have not had a particularly well-defined uh, view of trade. Um, but uh, the Democratic Party at that time, historically, which had been in favor of lower tariffs, was divided as well between sort of the New Dealers who wanted more government management of the economy and sort of the old-fashioned Southern Democrats who really wanted freer trade. And he was uh, sort of, as luck would have it, he appointed Cordell Hull as the Secretary of State, uh, who was one of the old Southern Democrats who favored freer trade. And the, the State Department took the lead on these trade negotiations. But for about a year or so, uh, when the Roosevelt administration took office, there's a big internal fight over uh, whether they should even liberalize trade or not. And uh, Democrats had always uh, complained about Smoot-Hawley as being um, special interest protectionist politics, but there wasn't big moves to, to remove it. And so it was really Cordell Hull, which sort of changed the course of U.S. trade policy. But I wouldn't attribute it directly to Roosevelt, except insofar as he appointed Hull to do this. Does it, how much does the Secretary of State deal with trade today? Not very much because Congress in the early 1960s sort of took trade policy authority away from the State Department and created a new entity called the U.S. Trade Representative's Office. And the reason they did that is they thought the State Department was too soft with regard to other countries and, and too concerned about foreign policy interests and not concerned as much about protecting uh, domestic producers. And so the, the U.S. TR, U.S. Trade Representative's Office, is supposed to be provide a more balanced uh, view of trade uh, coming from the federal government. Is it fair to say that the uh, the multilateral trading system is the system that we have today? Uh, by and large, yes. Uh, you know, we have. But the, it emerged in the the early forties. Exactly. Yep. So, sort of led by Cordell Hull, although he retired in nineteen forty four. Um, the U.S. Uh, con helped conclude uh, something called the GATT, the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade which uh, sort of provided the architecture, if you will, for the post-war trading system. And in terms of it didn't require countries to you know, set their tariffs in any particular way, but it just provided general rules about how, how you would do so. And then since then, uh, uh, that first GATT uh, negotiation in 1947, we've had a successive series of rounds to uh, reduce tariff levels. So tariff levels broadly among industrialized countries or advanced countries is pretty low. Um, and uh, that's why trade negotiations have moved on to other areas such as intellectual property, uh, government uh, regulations of various sorts that interfere with trade and, and things of that sort. Now, you mentioned the Secretary of State essentially being stripped of a great deal of trade authority. Do you, do you view that as, a, as, as having been a mistake? Uh, not necessarily. Um, actually, uh, you know, so I talk about this a little bit in my book. Um, I'm not sure it really matters all that much whether it was the State Department or some other entity. Um, uh, so I don't think that's a big pivot point in terms of uh, changing the course of U.S. trade policy. But I would say that uh, it was a bi bipartisan view that uh, it should be taken away from the State Department. Even uh, Democratic, uh, Democratic senators such as Paul Douglas, who's an economist at the University of Chicago, um, he was appalled by the way the State Department approached trade negotiations. Um, and uh, even he, who wanted open markets, uh, wanted to take it away from the State Department. You mentioned Republicans being the parties, uh, the party of tariffs uh, and trade restrictions, and that Southern Democrats, in many ways, were sort of leading the way for liberalization. When did that switch really occur? Where, uh, as we saw in the in the eighties and nineties, 
that Republicans were really much more engaged on free trade. Right. So there's this period in the uh, late 40s uh, into the 1960s where there's this sort of rough bipartisan consensus that for foreign policy reasons for the national economic interest, we want to pursue trade agreements to reduce trade barriers. But that actually begins to break down a little bit in the 1970s, much more in the 1980s, um, when uh, Democrats um, start moving in more of an anti-trade direction. They don't want to liberalize and open up. And Republicans uh, moved in the opposite direction, where they were sort of grudgingly in favor of trade agreements in the uh, 1950s, they became much uh, stronger champions of them. So, for example, Ronald Reagan uh, initially proposed something like a NAFTA, um, uh, and uh, the U.S.-Canada Free Trade Agreement occurred under his watch, and the Uruguay Round got started. And I think what happened is it's not as though the parties sort of had some rethink on trade. It's that they began to represent different regions of the country. So in the late 19th century, in the 19th century and early 20th centuries, the Republicans were mainly a party of the North. And now, as we know, they've really moved to the South and the West. And the Democrats uh, in the 19th century really were coming from the South. And they've moved to uh, the North and represented uh, the mid upper Midwest and, and urban areas in the uh, Northeast. So uh, what's happening is the parties f are flipping their positions on trade policy. And we see this dramatically in the vote on NAFTA in the early 1990s when Democrats um, didn't support President Clinton in, in voting that into being. Democrats um, become sort of the anti-trade party, uh, if you want to put it that strongly, because um, uh, they're representing the North, which historically, going way back to the 19th century, uh, has been much more reluctant or concerned about trade, whereas the South and the West are much more willing to embrace openness, and that's where the Republicans draw their strength today. What, what was labor's role in that switch? Was it significant or insignificant? Absolutely. Very significant because uh, the Democratic uh, Party obviously is uh, dependent on union support. A lot of those were from uh, manufacturing industries in the north, the U.S. Auto work, the auto workers, the steel workers and things of that sort. So the Democratic Party's ties to the union movement definitely has uh, shaped their views on trade. I see uh, people like Peter Navarro. Uh, and others talking about well, in specific with specifically uh, Mr. Navarro talking about how the United States needs to emulate uh, China's more uh, coordinated efforts with respect to trade and uh, economic planning. He talks about five-year plans out of China when it comes to trade and says this is something that the United States should emulate. Uh, I think that would be a terrible idea in multiple dimensions. Um, this has been a recurring theme. Even in the 1980s during the Reagan administration, a lot of people thought we ought to create a Department of International Trade that was sort of combined uh, powers of commerce and USTR and others and centralized trade authority and give it some uh, you know, uh, ability to not just manage trade but maybe even, uh, uh, pursue an industrial policy. But I think uh, you know the U.S. record on that is is pretty bad when it's tried to support many of these projects, and that, um, that you know the, the federal government is just uh, so um, affected by uh, lobbying and, and special interest politics that um, uh, any sort of industrial policy or trying to manage the economy in that centralized way would uh, end in tears. It's rare that I see organizations uh, take make uh, issues of trade their front and center. But one, at least one trade group that I'm aware of, which was, I think, the Consumer Technology Association, is probably the most free trade trade group 
that I've ever seen. And I guess it sort of makes sense because electronics have components, technology is developed in different places, and you have to create these huge supply chains. How has the, the supply chains, how has that changed how we ought to be thinking about trade? It's changed uh, trade politics and how we think about trade quite a bit because in the old days, uh, we used to import sort of final um, uh, products uh, manufactured from abroad. We'd produce comparable uh, goods here at home and sort of be competition one, uh, one against the other. And and you could see sort of see the the benefit of trade barriers to the domestic uh, producers. But now you're absolutely right. So many components and in intermediate goods uh, travel across international boundaries. People have said that uh, basically raising tariffs today is like putting up a wall in the middle of a factory. And that's incredibly disruptive to the production process. And when you, whenever you impose tariffs on intermediate goods or components, the, the, it's not just consumers as households who pay the price of those tariffs. It's really firms themselves and downstream users that uh, need those cheap inputs to remain competitive in a global marketplace. So that what that it changes the trade politics in this way is you get downstream industry groups arguing and lobbying against high tariffs in particular cases. And uh, uh, that gives politicians pause whenever they uh, are thinking about embracing such a cause. When observing the contemporary debate about trade and uh, imports, exports, and you know these rules about how much of a final product must be U.S. content uh, versus uh, content from other countries, uh, is there does does any of that worry you particularly? And why is that? And why might that be? So agreements such as NAFTA do have these rules of origin where uh, it's sort of trying to demark where a, a product is coming from or its components are coming from to s determine whether it's eligible for duty-free treatment under NAFTA. And I think most of uh, people who uh, sort of want open trade or these trade agreements just sort of have to hold their nose and uh, uh, accept these things. They're sort of a part of the, the bargain to get them through the political process. They may not be ideal in any sense of the word, and they are a government – uh, uh, constraint on trade, but it's sort of the price you have to pay if you want these uh, agreements to go through. And I don't think they really – they can be a burden on international trade, but firms have a lot of ways around them in many instances, and they can adjust to them. So um, uh, may not be happy about them, but uh, it's sort of uh, – uh, we have to sort of accept them, I think. Is there anything worrying to you about the, the manner in which the Trump administration has undertaken trade policy? Well, there are many ways in which I'm disturbed by what they're doing. Um, pulling out of TPP, uh, threatening to pull out of uh, NAFTA, um, the renegotiation of NAFTA in terms of actually those rules of origin uh, that we just talked about. I said they really weren't so burdensome or worrisome, but uh, the Trump administration really wants to raise them quite considerably, which I think would constrain um, international trade in the North American content. And uh, certainly you don't want to see those things spread. Um, then, of course, just sort of alienating other countries, uh, their obsession with um, bilateral trade balances. Um, they keep saying that uh, uh, they want to um, uh, have more bilateral agreements, but um, uh, other countries are not sort of stepping up to negotiate these things because they're really worried about what sort of provisions the Trump administration wants in some of these agreements. And is, is part of that that bilateral agreements tend to uh – nip at the heels of other agreements that people have made or countries have made? Um, it's mainly that, you know, so sort of by foregoing TPP and saying you're going to reach uh, 11 bilateral agreements with all the TPP partners, well, the U.S. has a lot more negotiating leverage uh, against any particular country when uh, you have a lot, of t uh, a lot of other countries and allies around the table. 
And uh, you can get a better agreement uh, when you have uh, sort of these regional groups. So the, uh, this idea that you can get a, a better deal or make a better deal one-on-one, uh, -on -one, I just don't think is the case. And of course, uh, these agreements take a long time to negotiate. So TPP was pretty much uh, finished when um, uh, the Trump administration came in, and uh, we sort of have to start from scratch. And I just don't think they'll be able to do that in their first term at all. What are the what are the stakes for the economy if trade isn't done right? Well, there's uh, sort of two potential costs. One is if uh, there continue efforts to raise tariffs or um, impose protectionist measures, obviously that imposes poses costs on consumers and downstream industries. Um, and, and generally won't help the economy. Uh, the, the broader concern might be is even if a lot of new measures aren't imposed, just by sort of standing on the sidelines and not engaging in the trade negotiations that other countries are moving forward with, for example, TPP is going forward with the United, without the United States, um, that means the U.S. will be excluded from them and won't get some of the commercial benefits from them. So, for example, uh, Australia, because they're a part of TPP with Japan, they'll get preferential access vis-a-vis uh, -vis the United States in the Japanese market, which is a big, large market, and uh, U.S. beef producers and other agricultural producers won't have the advantage of, of uh, those markets. So it's sort of this uh, erosion of uh, um, sort of the U.S. market share, if you will, in world trade where other countries move ahead and reach these deals that don't include us. Right. It's, it's not like these other countries are going to stand still when the United States chooses not to participate. Precisely. And they're already moving ahead. Mexico has a lot more free trade agreements than the U.S. does. Um, in fact, the Trump administration was complaining to the EU, why do you treat um, uh, cars made in Mexico better than cars made in the United States? Well, they don't. It's just that Mexico's reached an, a free trade agreement with the EU. Uh, the U.S. is free to do that as well, but we uh, just haven't pushed that. So other countries do move ahead with these things, and that uh, uh, it constitutes discrimination against U.S. exports and foreign markets. Douglas Irwin is author of Clashing Over Commerce, A History of U.S. Trade Policy. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes and Google Play, and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.